Remember the good old days before Microsoft Word had autosave? You'd type up some important document and then your computer would freeze and you'd lose hours of work just because you forgot to hit save? Well, that's what it's like going online without ExpressVPN. Every time you're connected to an unencrypted network, whether it's in an airport, a hotel, a cafe, or anywhere, your online data is not secure. Any person on that same network who knows what they're doing can gain access to your personal data. Bank logins, credit card details, passwords, all the stuff you don't want people seeing. Unfortunately, hacking has become much easier than it used to be. People don't even have to be exceptionally skilled to do it, and there's a lot of money to be made by selling your information on the dark web. ExpressVPN stops hackers from stealing your data by creating a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. It's incredibly easy to use. Once the app is running, you literally click one button to get protected. And it works on your phone, laptop, tablet, and more, so you can stay protected on the go. I've been using ExpressVPN for a little while now, and I can rest easy knowing my info is safe and secure. I've heard horror stories of people who've been hacked, and it sounds like a massive pain to try to get any resolution in the aftermath, so I am not interested in finding out what that process is like. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash slashfilm, and you can get an extra three months free. expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. This year has gone by incredibly quickly, but it's always nice to pause and take stock. What's something you're proud of in 2024 so far? What's something you still want to accomplish this year? I know I'm guilty of falling into a routine and not always thinking about the bigger picture, but as the great Ferris Bueller once said, life moves pretty fast. If you don't stop and look around once in a while, you can miss it. So it's crucial to take a moment to celebrate your wins and make adjustments for the rest of the year. Therapy can help you contextualize your progress and set achievable goals for the next six months. As you surely know by now, it's not only for people who have experienced major trauma. Therapy is helpful in all kinds of ways, including learning positive coping skills and how to set boundaries. If you've been considering trying therapy, check out BetterHelp. It's fully online and was specifically designed to be flexible and customizable to your schedule. To get started, just fill out a brief questionnaire that matches you up with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Take a moment. Visit BetterHelp.com FilmDaily today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash film daily. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Film Daily for Thursday, February 6, 2020. On today's episode, we're going to discuss what we've been up to at the water cooler. This is Slash Film Editor-in-Chief Peter Serrata. And joining me on today's podcast is Slash Film Managing Editor, Jacob Hall. Hello, hello. Weekend Editor, Brad Oman. Hey, that's me. Senior Writer, Ben Pearson. Hey, what's going on? And Writer, Squadron Bowie. Hey, everyone. And Chris Evangelista. Hello, folks. I'm back. I'm, I want to say no longer sick, but I'm, I'm less sick. So that's good. Uh, and uh, I think this is the first time we've had the whole team on the podcast uh, in a couple weeks. So it's, it's, it's good to have all of us in a virtual room together to discuss what we've been up to. Uh, okay, let's, let's talk about what we've been doing. Um, what have I been up to? Uh, not much. I, uh, Last week I went to a went to Disneyland as I often do for an event that they have they've been doing these after hour events like after the park closes they have these after hour parties which are a ticketed event and it's, it's called Disneyland After Dark and this one was themed around the eighties it was called Eighties Night and uh, basically they have characters around the park that are almost never out like say Roger Rabbit was there um, they they had. Uh, C-3PO was in 
Batu for the first time, so that was kind of cool. We got to meet the Ewoks in uh, in, in Tomorrowland. Uh, and they are never out, and there's like f- crazy food inspired by the '80s. I got to try gummy uh, gummy berry juice, uh, which is not as exciting as it sounds. And um, recorded a whole vlog. I'll link to that in the show notes. But it it was a a lot of fun, a lot of great food, a lot of great photo ops. Um, I, if, if you have, are, are living anywhere near Disneyland and are considering going to one of these after dark events, uh, this is the first time I've been to one of them and, uh, Kitra and I both thoroughly enjoyed ourselves. So I highly recommend it. But, uh, if you want to see, uh, meeting R2D2 and C3PO in Galaxy's Edge, go check out that video. Uh, HT, what have you been up to? Uh, I was in London last week for the Birds of Prey London premiere and the junket for the film directed by Kathy Ann and written by Christina Hodson and Starling, starring Margot Robbie as Harley Quinn. Um, so it was a, a really quick trip uh, in which I got to see to see the movie and like sort of not experience the red carpet. They just kind of rushed me through the red carpet and were like, they're <laughs> not here for you. Um, but uh, I got to... Uh, did you try to, to stop and like strike a pose for the photographers? And then... Yeah, I did. I did. I took a few poses and got my friend to take a picture <laughs> on a camera on my phone. So like very, very cool and glamorous right there. But um, it was, uh, yeah, it was fun. A very long red carpet. They had us sitting in the theater for like an hour before the movie actually started. Um, but yeah, the movie is great. You heard my reaction on, uh, I think, yesterday's episode of um, the of Slash Film Daily. It's just a, it's a really fun bonanza um, roller coaster of a movie, a big fun house uh, ride. So it's um, definitely recommend it. And um, I also got to do to attend a Birds of Prey party after the junket, in which I spoke to the cast and crew, um, and that was involved sort of. Uh, a roller rink, like a skating, skate, roller skating rink, uh, because in the film <laughs> uh, Harley Quinn joins a roller derby team uh, to let out some, to vent out some of her frustrations. And um, I fell many times and uh, accumulated a couple of bruises from that. Turns out, knowing how to ice skate from like ten years ago does not help you roller skate, and you will fall very embarrassingly several times, uh, especially if there's alcohol involved, which there was. But it was it was a fun party. Like they had everything themed to it. There's a lot of uh, Instagram um, uh, areas, Instagramable areas that, that they could that you could take in front of like the sign that uh, Harley makes of the Joker so that she can beat it up and stuff. And um, they have little stations where you could get uh, Harley themed makeup and uh, Birds of Prey themed cocktails. So it was it was a lot of fun. Um, wait, wait, uh, wait. Injury aside, at, at this party were like the stars, like Margot Robbie, also like roller skating with you. No, they were supposed to be, but they did not show up. They did hire <laughs> uh, dancers or professional roller skaters to be in the middle of this rink and just do random acrobatic. Um, uh, twirls and stuff to make us all feel better, <laughs> but it was yeah, it was uh, it was fun. No, they were, I think they were supposed to show up, but they did not, which was very disappointing. But um, at least we didn't embarrass ourselves in front of Margot Robbie. So <laughs> there you go. How how was London besides all the movie premiere uh, craziness? 
Uh, it was good. It was probably the same weather as it was in New York, as in very strangely warm at, at one point and then dropping in temperature. As a result, I uh, got sick on the way back and was a... a sick for a couple of days and recovering, but um, uh, I didn't get to do a lot of traveling around there. I visited a couple times before, so I don't really feel the need to do some touristing, but um, the weather on the our first day there actually was really sunny and nice, which was lucky because that was the red carpet day, so they didn't have to walk around in the rain uh, in their nice gowns. What else have you been up to? Yeah, so... Um, Lunar New Year has come and passed, and I remember talking about how I was excited for it and getting ready for it. And um, one of the things I did to get ready for it was uh, uh, make a dish, which was not really traditional to Lunar New Year, but I made this sort of uh, sticky rice. It's um, soy lap suong, which is sticky rice with Chinese sausages for my cousin's Lunar New Year party, uh, which was a potluck, and we had all sorts of traditional and non-traditional dishes to eat at... Um, at Lunar New Year, uh, which in Vietnamese we call Tet. And um, uh, another tradition is that uh, at in some various Asian cultures, um, New Year marks the first, a new year that everyone ages. So when you're born, you're actually, um, you're, you are one, but um, when the new, next New Year passes, Lunar New Year, that's when you turn the next year. So it's not actually your birthday, that's your birthday, but the Lunar New Year. Uh, marks the passage of every year. So at uh, the Lunar New Year party, it was my cousin's son's first one-year birthday. <laughs> and uh, we celebrated that by putting him in a very itchy haozai, um, which is the traditional Vietnamese garb, uh, which he hated, and of course, and uh, participated in something called a birthday grab. I, in Vietnamese, it's called a Noi. I'm not pronouncing it right. But, wait, wait, um, wait, wait a second, HT. Before you go on, Brad, what do you think birthday grab means? Uh, maybe it's a thing where like they get tossed up into the air and caught by a crowd. <laughs> Chris, do you have any guesses for what birthday grab could possibly be? No, I, I, don't, I have no guesses. Okay, HD, tell us what birthday grab is. All right, birthday grab. So this is actually something that's done in several Asian uh, cultures, and it's at the one-year um, birthday of a baby. Uh, several objects are placed in front of the baby, and whichever they grab uh, will indicate what kind of future they have. And oh, um, Yeah, I heard about this. My, my girlfriend's um, sister is married to a Korean guy, and mm -hmm. they, they do something similar for, for uh, their babies as well. Yeah. Um, it's very common in Korean culture, but Vietnamese uh, and Chinese and Japanese, I think, do it too. Um, so usually it's something that parents like to do to see, like, what will, what kind of career the baby will have. So the, my cousin put, like, a, uh, a little doctor's stethoscope, a calculator, <laughs> um, a, a pen, a keyboard, like a little baby keyboard, and... Um, a uh, a couple other things, but um, no, no one puts yeah. a book of like Roger Ebert movie reviews out there, right? No, uh, she did put a book down, but it was like a zoo animal book, so I wasn't sure if it meant he was going to be a writer or if he means meant he was going to be a zookeeper or something. But you know, it's it's all those kind of things, and it's, it's nice. Like the items uh, vary between like the parents and whatever they want to put in front of it. Sometimes, oh, 
people often put like a little ball, like a tennis ball or a little soccer ball uh, that they can grab with their hands to see like, oh, well, they'll be an athlete or something. And um, it's a it's a fun little tradition. And that is um, that parents like to say, like, is sort of like a determination of the future. And uh, Kian Sam, my cousin's baby, grabs a calculator, which means he's going to be a nerd. Probably or an accountant, um, and so it was. It was cute though, because um, I think he he had saw, seen the screen of the calculator and had been trying to play with phones all day. So he was just really excited to see a screen. But as soon as he grabbed it, we all cheered, and he was so shocked that he started crying. But um, it was it was fun, and it's a really fun little party game because you put it all in like a sheet, and you put all these things at the end, and they run up and grab it, and like it's a little toy. So it's a it's a really cool thing, and I'm. I was excited to uh, to see that and participate in that. I like that tradition. Sounds mm-hmm. sounds a lot fun, a, a lot more fun than the itchy whatever thing that he hated. So, so yeah, yeah. Okay, uh, let's let's move on to what we've been reading. Jacob, what have you been reading this week? Uh, I've almost finished reading The Last Stone by Mark Bowden, and I won't go too deep on this because Chris read this last year and spoke highly of it. And that's why I picked it up. But it's a true crime uh, story uh, about a decades-old cold case about uh, two children went missing and how it, in around I think it was 2013, new evidence emerged and police went all out to solve it. And it's a really, really gripping, upsetting read. And um, one of my big issues with a lot of modern true crime is that sometimes the storytellers revel in the crime. Like, they, like, they seem giddy to be discussing how you know gross or you know or hideous the crime was. And they seem like really enjoying it. Whereas Mark Bowden, being a professional journalist and not some podcaster, uh, he has, has a certain amount of reverence for the uh, detectives and and respect for the people who were harmed. And it makes all difference in the world in taking a really grisly story and making it into something uh, genuinely compelling and important the wrong word, but I think vital uh, <laughs> in an age where, tr- where true crime is everywhere and constant. This is like a reminder of what it can be when it's truly great. So uh, that's the last stone. H.T., what have you been reading? I've been reading Convenience Store Woman by Sayaka Murata. Um, And this is a book that I actually started for a book club I joined. I'm really excited about this because I was looking forward to doing new things for the new year. And I joined a book club, which is one of those things. And uh, Convenience Store Woman is this lovely, really elegant and small little book about a woman who has um, always struggled to sort of fit in society. It suggested that she might be autistic or some sort. And... um, the only place where she thrives is at a convenience store where she has worked for around 10, 15 years. And while the rest of the world begins uh, is uh, moving on without her, she is happy just to be doing the same thing uh, day in and day out. And um, it's this um, really eerie and hypnotic little book um, that feels a little bit bleak at points and kind of talks about uh, trying to fit in with society and that clockwork um, regime of it. But um, yeah, it's a, it's a it's a wonderful little uh, book. Uh, I think it's Sayaka Murata's first of her 10 novels translated to English and her, she has a really uh, lovely... Uh, really simple prose that just make it, makes it a very fast read. Um, and, uh, yeah, I highly recommend this. It's uh, called Convenience Store Woman. And when she was a little baby, she grabbed onto a big gulp in the birthday grab. 
Yes. Yes. Um, I, I do have a question for you. I've never been part of a book club. Are you doing this like online or in person? No, this is something that kind of came up organically. It's my my high school friend who lives in New York. We were talking about just meeting up more, and she said she had joined a book club with, um, uh, she had made a book club with a bunch of friends that she had met on Bumble, and um, they just started doing it. It's a it's a book club full of Asian women, so I feel like we'll be reading <laughs> a lot of Asian books. But um, it's just it's a yeah it. it I can't give rec- any recommendations for like how to join a book club or apps that you can find, but this one just kind of came up organically for me. But what what happens? You read a couple chapters and then meet and then discuss like what has been happening. I, I, well, I know it sounds like stupid because I'm sure a lot of people have been part of book clubs and I'm like the only one who hasn't. But I'm I'm just wondering what a book club is like. Well, you um I we finished the book, um <laughs> and so we just kind of re- meet and discuss uh, what's um what we thought of the book and that kind of thing. It's more of like an excuse to get together and talk yeah. and meet other people. Um, but yeah, it's a, it, I think, yeah, it's just like try to finish the book and talk about it together. And it's a, it's a good way to get introduced to new books as well. Yeah, and it, I guess it's motivating you to find the time to, to complete the book too. Exactly. Yeah, very cool. Okay, let's move on to what we've been watching. Uh, let's start things out with McMillions. This is a new series on HBO. It's a documentary series. I watched the first episode. I think Ben watched the first episode and Chris watched the entire series because he's special. And, uh, uh, I, you know, I had heard about this because, uh, Jacob, I think you brought this up. Like you had read an article about this whole scenario. Yeah, it was uh, last year, the year before, there was a big article about this, about the whole Monopoly McDonald's uh, game fraud, and it was immediately in the movie news because it was being the rights to were being sold, and like people, a lot of people wanted to make it into a movie or a series, and he, now here we are. It's a, I haven't watched a series yet, but the, the actual written story is really compelling. Yeah, I can tell you uh, from the first episode, it's very compelling. Uh, this is like interviews, uh, and they have uh, cinematic reenactments over them. And the characters are just kind of quirky enough to be interesting. And the, the I mean, the story at the core, like, has the twists and turns of uh, a true crime story. And, like, it, it is told from the, the point of view of the FBI investigating this. So it's unraveling in front of them. Uh, I do, if I have any complaint about this, it is that this feels like content that was made for binging. And it's so frustrating after watching this one episode that I can't watch the rest of the series. Like, I feel like as someone who has been a proponent, like, you know, I love water cooler television shows like lost and, and Westworld and, you know, Watchmen stuff like that. But I feel like something like this, like just, it feels so outdated for it to be episodic week by week, uh, with these cliffhangers and stuff like that. Like I, I want to watch all of it now. Uh, Ben, what do you feel about this, this series? That's interesting. I also am a huge proponent of the week-to-week model, but I think maybe maybe uh, my mindset is a little bit different when it comes to documentaries. <laughs> um, I don't know. I because I, I, I just rewatch or I just uh, watched for the first time the um, Aaron Hernandez uh, documentary. I talked about that uh, on a, a recent water cooler, and I, I think there is something about the documentary style that lends itself to binging a lot better than you know traditional narrative stuff. Like you don't you don't necessarily have like for uh, for big dramas and stuff, like you have that week in between to sort of mull over what you've seen and like maybe theorize and try to uh, 
I don't know, extricate some sort of deeper meaning or, or um, uh, whatever thematic messaging that the, the showrunners might have in place. And that's not really there in documentaries. So yeah. I see what you mean. And I, I think I ultimately agree with you that I, especially after watching this episode, I just wanted to immediately turn on the next one. So um, I don't what, know. I what, what did if you think something... of? Oh, I was going to say, what, what did you think of this episode? Uh, I liked it. I thought it was a little long. I think, um, I don't know, if if all of them feel this way, I will probably at the very end of it feel like, okay, this whole thing could have been maybe told in five episodes instead of six or something. Um, but I, I enjoyed it. I think the uh, my wife watched it with me and she was rolling her eyes very, very hard at the FBI agent who like is obsessed with going undercover and seems like really, really impatient. I mean, he's like the most... Um, uh, ridiculous and, and entertaining character, quote unquote. I, I love that thing. guy. He's so ridiculous. Yeah, he's like, <laughs> I don't know. I I, I uh, find myself my I find my thoughts on him um, like sort of evolving as the episode goes on. There are times when I'm I'm rolling my eyes at the guy as well, but there are also times where I, I come all the way back around on it and I'm like, I freaking love this guy. He's so over the top and ridiculous. But um, yeah, I don't know. I, I really enjoyed it. I thought it was a super entertaining thing. Like Jacob and like Chris, I read that article, you know, a couple of years ago when that came out and it was really fascinating. But I think, uh, I don't know, maybe it's just the way my brain works, but uh, I like being able to dig into the details a little bit more in a documentary like this than just, um, you know, uh, I guess journalists are constrained with uh, the amount of space they can they can use and and um, the amount of research they can do but um, it seems like just a, a deeper exploration of that story and I really uh, like what I saw so far yeah I I'd never read the the original article that this is based on or you know the story is based on or I don't know any of the the, the facts so the twist and turns here especially the reveal at the end of the first episode kind of hit me harder than I think probably you did because you know you're waiting for that to, to come into play uh but chris how many episodes of this you you saw the whole series yes there are six episodes total and um i i really like this i will say that i do think they probably could have cut this down to like a two-hour movie honestly it didn't it probably didn't need to be a six-part thing i just think hbo wants in on that true crime doc uh, market that Netflix has cornered. Um, but beyond that, it's, it's very entertaining. Um, it goes to some very surprising and dark places. And uh, the last episode, though, really got to me because it, it actually does this thing where, uh, you, you know, this whole thing is, is the brainchild of this one guy. And he roped all these other people into his scheme. And one thing I wasn't expecting is the final episode really has like empathy for pretty much everyone involved with the scheme, except the main guy. It, it makes a, it makes a convincing argument that this guy, you know, duped all these people who are just desperate for money and he ruined all these people's lives. And while he is probably like a psycho, everyone, you know, involved with him really got worse than they deserved. And it, I was, I, I was really appreciating that it didn't like, it wasn't like, ah, we're judging all these people. It actually yeah. has empathy for them. And uh, uh, this is a crazy story because I had I had never heard of it. And uh, you actually find out that this actually made national news. But the, the, the thing that I think caused it to be forgotten is when the story broke, it broke like a few days before September 11th. And then the September 11th attacks basically knocked it off of every front page. And that's why everyone sort of forgot about it, which... Huh. is uh, is kind of mind-blowing and i i have a uh i also have an anecdote here which I, i'll try not to be too long but um 
So uh, I have a personal connection to this story, sort of. Um, so my father uh, worked for McDonald's, and uh, during this this Monopoly game, he actually also pulled off a scam. And I can tell the story now because my father is dead, so he can't get in trouble. So <laughs> you're off the hook, Dad. But um, basically, he uh, for those who don't know the Monopoly, the McDonald's Monopoly game, which is still going on, actually, you you know you pull off tokens, and you can either win instant. And there are big prizes like, you know, a million dollars or, or trips or in there, there are small prizes like, you know, free burgers. And my dad basically just <laughs> while went to a McDonald's and, and pulled off a bunch of, of fry boxes until he found a winner for a cruise on the big red boat, which no longer exists. And we cash it in and we went on that cruise. So there you have it. My father <laughs> scammed McDonald's. Wait, 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 wait a second. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> what does he do with all the boxes that he ripped the things off of? I don't know, Peter. I can't ask him. He's dead. <laughs> <laughs> wow. This was a very, very long time. This is when I was in, I think, like fifth grade. That's wow. how long ago this was. So did I, you know at the wow. time, Chris, that, that it was the result of a, a scam or did you learn yes, that later? Yes, I did. And I stupidly was like telling everyone and my parents were like, stop <laughs> telling people because we're going to get in trouble. This is this is a movie in itself. Wow. <laughs> Weird. Crazy. Yes. Millions the sequel. Yes. The Chris Evangelista story. The big red boat story. <laughs> but, but when everybody, like when I was a kid playing this Monopoly game at McDonald's, uh, Everybody was just trying to get like Boardwalk and Park Place, and there like either one of those was like never available. Like it was the rare one to complete the set, and like it. Chris, I don't want you to ruin this story for me, but are all these prizes just like instant win prizes, or was there ever a completion to like that Monopoly map? Um, there there is a complete. I mean, the story is really about how uh, this guy. Uh, his name is they called him uncle jerry he worked so so mcdonald's they didn't make the game pieces they outsourced them to this other company and this guy this uncle jerry guy worked for that company and that company was making legitimate game pieces but because this guy had an inside he was basically just stealing all the good ones and no one caught on to it for somehow it just went by everyone's radar. And so, you know, the, the game was in theory legitimate, but this guy yeah. basically made it illegitimate with his scamming this guy and my father. Yeah. Well, apparently he didn't want to cruise on the big red boat. So. No, I guess not. <laughs> okay. Uh, but I think all, all three of us can recommend this series. Yeah. Oh yeah. It's definitely worth checking out. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I really like it. I do agree that it does feel like a little fluffed out. Like there's a point in this first episode where there, the FBI is going on this undercover operation, like posing as a documentary film crew, interviewing the people who had won the Monopoly game. And like, they're making a big deal of like, oh my God, if this went wrong like we have like a team down the street and i'm like how is this gonna go wrong they're a documentary film crew interviewing people and it like was made into this big thing that i feel like was a little bit ridiculous but um anyways very enjoyable uh that's mcmillions and that is on hbo and the first episode aired what this last week i guess because yeah that's the only one yeah, i think it aired monday yeah okay uh Let's talk about the Good Place finale. Jacob, you you of course saw this, right? Uh, yeah, the Good Place, which ranked goodness like it was number two or three on our uh, best shows a decade list from last month. 
uh, it came to its end. Its uh, four-season run is over. It, it ended on its own terms. It never got bad, which is a really nice thing to say about a modern-day comedy. It uh, maybe has lulls and has plateaus here and there, but like there's no single bad season of The Good Place. And the finale did a really incredible job of bringing back all the characters, uh, touching on all the themes, and saying goodbye. And it, for a show that's literally about death, uh, it is managed to... Uh, talk about that in a very optimistic fashion it was it's difficult to talk about without spoiling it i don't want to spoil it for people who haven't watched it yet but it's a really incredible hour of television at least i thought it was the online reaction team is a bit more mixed than i thought uh but really at the end of the day it was a show about your legacy being the good you put into the world and that is a message that is simple but one i think the show understood that uh, the simplest concepts uh, require a lot of complexity to pull off and being a good person is difficult and the show was all about that until its very last seconds and I adored this ending I was crying so much uh, HT did you cry a lot too? I cried and I absolutely love this finale I think that um, it was just such a perfect way to end the series and it also solidified the fact that this was basically comedy lost which just also uh, doubled my love for this but yeah it was um, such a wonderful thoughtful and um, thought-provoking finale that uh, really just brought it all together Chris you saw this as well I did um I'm a little on the fence here. I love the show. Uh, I did like the finale. It did get me emotional. I was, you know, weeping copiously near the end. But uh, without giving anything away, there are a few choices some of the characters make at the, you know, the end that I don't, they just didn't quite sit right with me. And I had a little bit of a problem with them. But, uh, you know, no show can be 100% perfect. I feel like this show comes as close as you possibly can be. So I'll let it off the hook. I just, there's some of it that just sits wrong with me and makes me feel a little uncomfortable. But the show as a whole was so good and and pure and kind that I can't fault it. <laughs> ben, how about you? Yeah, I also really, really loved it. Um, I think the only issue I had with it was the very, very last scene of the whole show. I felt like, uh, <laughs> I don't know, it's very difficult to talk about without spoiling. So maybe we can come back and, and discuss this, uh, I don't know, in a few weeks after um, uh, Brad has a chance to catch up with it and maybe some of our listeners do as well. I just want to know what you guys think about like the last line in particular, but I don't want to get into a, a full-on conversation about that now when, when it's still like so recent. So um, yes, overall, point. Uh, you know, eight percent brilliant. I loved it. I was crying all the way through it, and it's uh, yeah, one of the best shows I've ever seen for sure. Uh, speaking of crying while watching TV, I saw Apple TV's new show Little America, and this is from Kumio and Emily Gordon. Uh, they produced this, and this is another show on Apple TV, a platform that no one knows exists or <laughs> doesn't watch any of the shows where the the show sounds. Uh, on the surface, like something probably mainstream public wouldn't care about or be interested in. Um, it, you know, it, it's an anthology show about uh, immigrants to this country and telling their, uh, you know, real stories of real people. Uh, it, uh, it, it is just really well done. This is a, another hit. Like, I don't know. Apple TV. I've seen, 
I've watched four shows for uh, on, on Apple TV so far, and so far, I've really liked a lot or loved three of those, and this is one of those. And it, it's a shame that no one <laughs> knows that Apple TV exists. Uh, but the show, uh, to give you an idea, the first episode follows uh, this. Uh, Indian child who his parents are deported. Uh, I'm, I'm being very like fast and loose with these details, but uh, and uh, they they manage this small hotel, and he's basically left on his own with a, a family relative to like basically take on management of the small like motel. And uh, you know he wants his family to come back to the U.S. and he enters the National Spelling Bee in an effort to try to get to. Uh, the current uh, first lady, who is the the, the first Bush, uh, what's her first name? Um, Barbara. Barbara, I think. Maybe maybe I'm missing which Bush it was. Maybe it was the second Bush. Laura. Uh, Laura. Yeah, I think it was Laura. Actually, I'm not even sure. I don't even remember. Uh, uh, this is bad. Okay. Uh, to clarify, Peter, all, all these episodes are based on true stories, right? Yes. All these are based on true stories. Uh, this isn't the type of story that ends with, like, him getting there and then his parents get back. You know, it's it's not like the uh, traditional Hollywood story ending Not that doesn't ruin anything in any way. Like, these stories are, are very heartwarming. They're bittersweet. They're sometimes funny. Uh there are stories and moments that resonate. They're so beautifully filmed. And uh, at the end of each episode, like it, it does, you know, the thing that most like movies that are based on true stories does where it shows you like some photos or video of like the actual people. And uh, I've only watched three episodes so far, but every single one of them, I've been in tears uh, multiple moments throughout. Uh, so I highly recommend little America. Uh, it's on that service that you don't know exists it's called Apple TV plus. If you bought a new iPhone, you can get a year of it free. But uh, it sounds like even Apple, you know, people that own iPhones don't even know it exists. So there's you that. You could get a year free, Peter. The uh, the cutoff has already passed now. So. Yeah, the deal ended. Uh, ah, so you can't even get it free. So, I, so I've so i basically ruined it for you guys because no one's going to pay for this. So uh, <laughs> Apple should just make this for free. Like, I feel like it would be goodwill to get people interested in Apple TV and their, their products uh, they have some good content here, guys. People need to start watching it. Um, okay, uh, I also watched the first episode of Picard, which is something I wasn't going to watch, but it, uh, I was going to wait until the first season was on CBS All Access. Is that the name of the service? Yeah, I think so. Uh, but it was made available for free on YouTube, which we wrote about on SlashFilm.com. So I checked that out. Uh, I will say that Picard is a character. I I always love Next Generation. Picard as a character is very interesting. In this, like I love Patrick Stewart. Uh, the show is kind of like wrapped in this mystery box of a thing going on that I'm not sure I'm that interested in. Uh, the fact that I don't, you know, have access to more episodes right now to watch probably means I'm probably never going to get to those episodes, which is kind of sad. Uh, but it feels very TV. It feels very CBS. Uh, but Picard and, and um, Patrick Stewart, I think, elevate this a little bit. Uh, I'm, I'm just not sure if I'm going to get to the rest of the se- season. Uh, Jacob, I'm surprised you have not watched this ep- uh, this show yet. You're a big Star Trek fan. I am, and Picard's one of my favorite characters of all time, but I'm just waiting until more of, or if not all, the show is on CBS All Access. I can resubscribe for a month and then yeah. unsubscribe. <laughs> 
Yeah, subscribe like when like the last four or like when it's into the last four episodes because then you can watch those week by week. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, Jacob, what have you been watching? Uh, one thing I want to talk about recently, I've, I watched a lot of garbage, not worth talking about, but I did watch uh, Terminator Dark Fate, which is surprisingly not garbage. Uh, it's Tim Miller's movie from last year, massive financial bomb, ugh, seems to have killed the Terminator franchise for good. Uh, but it's actually, it's a good movie. It's not great. It's no Terminator 1, no Terminator 2. But it's easily the third best Terminator movie. It, it runs circles around, around the other ones, especially uh, Genesis and Salvation, which are just dog crap. But yeah, it is. It has a real Halloween 2018 energy. It has. I feel like those movies, movies could be like cousins in a weird way, and uh, how they revisit you know genre female characters you know decades later, and really dig in about how how they've grown, how they've changed, and are curious about them as women and as characters. Uh, I think Tim Miller has a really strong eye for action. The script is really crazy and takes some big swings. I think it kind of misses a mark in the final stretch. It becomes a bit too familiar in the climax. Uh, but I, if if this was Terminator 4, if they had made this 10 years ago or even 5 years ago before Genesis, uh, I, I think this could have been like something really rejuvenating. And like, it's a shame that you know the well was so thoroughly poisoned that people didn't come up with this one because Terminator Dark Fate is surprisingly good. Yeah. Um, okay. Let's move on to Chris. Chris, what have you been watching? Uh, I saw Gretel and Hansel, which feels like old news now because I think it bombed and <laughs> it came out like two weeks ago. But this is surprisingly good. I think it deserved better than a, a January uh, dump. The January film landscape is usually the dumping ground where people just drop off stuff they don't really care about. And I could tell the studio had very little faith in this. And I get why, because... It's it's a very weird movie and it's it's really trippy and it has all these really like mystical and occult uh, under trappings which I was not expecting and it's you know it, it's it's a familiar story but it's it's told in a really interesting way and I feel like this is one of those films that's like destined to be a cult classic like five years from now this will be like streaming somewhere and someone's gonna be like oh wow this is great how come no one ever told me about it and I'm telling you about it right now hypothetical person in the future um and then i watched the uh the director's cut of dr sleep um the original dr sleep the theatrical cut is already pretty long this one makes it even longer it turns into a a three-hour movie and um it's really not that much different It, it sort of adds uh more character beats um there's an extra scene with one character who i guess i shouldn't spoil in case you haven't seen it yet which people probably haven't because it didn't do well at the box office and it also throws in like chapter headings which is something the shining did which i don't really think this needed but uh i'll put it this way if you liked the theatrical cut you'll like this cut but if you didn't like the theatrical cut this won't change your mind but i i still think this is a a commendable movie it doesn't entirely work It, it it sort of botches the ending i think honestly uh but beyond that i think this is uh a worthwhile film and um i'm always i'm always in the tag for more mike flanagan okay i have a question for you should people seek out the theatrical cut or director's cut if they have not seen it man i kind of want to say theatrical cut because it gives you more stuff but you might be better off with the theatrical, I guess, just because it's shorter. I don't, I don't know. It depends on how much time you have to have to watch this film. If you don't want to sit through three hours, you'll be fine with the the, the theatrical cut. Okay. Uh, Brad, 
I think you're the only one here that watched the entire Super Bowl this past week. Um, I I think Jacob watched the Super oh, did Bowl, you? didn't he? Yeah, I, I was, Brad and I were both on Slash Film Duty watching the game and writing up movie trailers. <laughs> yeah. Uh, what did you think of the big game? Uh, it was actually a really good game. You know, I'm not somebody who watches football regularly. I, I didn't care uh, who won whatsoever. I, I was, you know, quote-unquote rooting for the Kansas City Chiefs just because they were the underdog. They hadn't been to the Super Bowl uh, in 50 years, which was the last time they won. Uh, they ended up winning, which was awesome. It, w- it was a really close game and ver- very entertaining. Um, the commercials were fine. A lot of the best ones were released before the game, which is just how it goes now. But there were a couple surprises, um, you know, at, at least somewhat surprises because we anticipated some of these trailers arriving, such as the the big uh, Marvel Studios Disney Plus Super Bowl spot, which shows the first footage from Loki and Falcon and the Winter Soldier and WandaVision. Um, but, yeah, you know, I just uh, watched it with my uh, my parents and uh, my girlfriend, and it was, yeah, just a, a decent game. See, I used to like watch. I'm not a big sports fan. I actually probably hate sports, is what I could say. Uh, but I used to watch the Super Bowl just for the commercials. But nowadays, like, I feel like the best stuff goes online. Even sometimes, like you said, before the game, that I feel like no need to like be part of that like greater. Like it felt ten years ago to me. It felt like you had to be at a Super Bowl party to be part of the conversation. And now, like. Is it that I'm getting old or is it just the, the, the evolution of, you know, now it's segmented onto like all the best clips are online and I don't need to watch the whole thing? Yeah, I think if you only care about, you know, the commercials and you're, you're not particularly invested in the game and nobody else is really interested in just having a general hangout session, which is kind of what a lot of Super Bowl parties, I think, become for people who aren't sports fans then, you know, you can just watch them online the day after or, or something like that. So I, I personally just like it because um, my my mom likes to cook uh, a lot of, like, Super Bowl snacks and that kind of thing. And so it's just a, a fun social gathering. So what you're saying is I'm an anti-social homebody. I mean, <laughs> maybe... If, I mean, maybe, I would agree with it, Brad. I would, I would totally agree. Maybe Disneyland can have a Super Bowl party <laughs> and then you can go. <laughs> I wonder if they show the Super Bowl at Disneyland anywhere. Probably not. I don't think so. But uh, I don't know. I wouldn't be surprised if they did because they have that deal where the MVP after every game goes to Disney World. So I wouldn't be surprised if they play it somewhere. Yeah. By the way, I was reading a history of that and that came about because Mike, like, it was an idea of like Michael Eisner's wife. And now that's become like a huge thing. But uh, anyways, uh, what else have you been watching, Brad? Uh, so stuff that's you know pretty much gone for ages now, but I've just been catching up on some January things. And plus, we just haven't had a water cooler in a while. Uh, but I saw The Turning, uh, which is a horror movie that um, is not good. <laughs> <laughs> it is. It was really really disappointing uh this is an adaptation of um the classic turn of the screw uh ghost story by henry james uh it's a little bit um more of a modern take on it it's set in the 90s uh it stars Mackenzie davis uh it has um brooklyn prince from the florida project and it has finn uh, finn wolfhard from stranger things and it's just very poorly conceived it's a lot of cheap jump scares and like there's there's there are remnants of what could have been a compelling ghost story that involves um, abuse and uh, mental illness, but it is completely lost in just a messy, boring movie with an ending that is downright baffling 
and barely makes cohesive sense. Like you can get an idea of what the ending means, but it comes so abruptly without any real, I guess, explanation. And not and it's not that you can't have a horror movie be subtle in its ending, but this is just out of nowhere and and just doesn't have any significance or like actual impact on what you've just been watching. Uh, extremely disappointing. Well, that sucks. <laughs> what else have you been watching? Um, on the other end of the spectrum, I saw Underwater, which is um, sort of a, a monster movie, um, horror movie that's like Alien, but it's set uh, in the, the Mariana Trench, deep underwater. Kristen Stewart is in it, uh, Vincent Cassell, T.J. Miller. Um, and it's uh, this movie is really, really cool. Uh, I was expecting it to be just kind of whatever, you know, because it felt like a retread of where we've been before, but it's so well done. The, the production design in this movie, first of all, is outstanding. Uh, the characters ha- um, have these awesome suits that they wear underwater because the, uh, the pressure is so strong when you're that deep underwater that they have to have these strong uh, underwater suits. And they, they almost look like Halo Master Chief uh, diving suits. And they just, they did a great job of designing them because they feel worn and like, just, they just have this tangible quality to them that really puts you, you know, in the right head, right headspace to understand like what this place is like. And, uh, has fantastic visual effects for creating the underwater sequences, really cool creature designs. It's, it honestly, as the, the movie goes on, it almost feels like it could have easily been a video game adaptation. Um, just the way the story progresses and it's uh, it got a lot of suspense, and I, I really just had a lot of fun with it. It's just a generally cool movie, not not, not uh, you know groundbreaking in any way, but just a, a fun you know little horror thriller. See, I want I want to see this movie, but some people have like been. I I read some reviews, and it seemed like a lot of people were just saying it was just like an alien abyss kind of you know just a derivative kind of film. It it, it is, but it's but it's really fun. Like I honestly yeah. don't like. Uh, it, it, that's absolutely what what it is, but I don't think that it's necessarily bad or, or a detriment to it. Okay, what else have you been watching? Uh, I saw Bad Boys for Life, um, and it, it is good. It is really fun. I think that uh, it really reinvigorates the franchise. It uh, you know evolves Will Smith and Martin Lawrence's characters in interesting ways. Um, it's it does this you know concept or like deals with these characters in a lot better way than like what a lethal weapon four did um or anything like that it's just uh the the action is great it loses a lot of the superficial music video qualities that michael bay brought to it without losing some of the style that made bad boys movies you know feel like michael bay movies um the new supporting cast is great because there's a, a whole new team that gets introduced and it's yeah it has some surprises too which i was caught off guard by and really made it that much more entertaining um so yeah i after seeing this i'm really down to see another bad boys movie i, I hope that the success of this movie which has also been surprising people um hopefully I, that gets a, a fourth movie off the ground yeah i'm gonna have to add this movie as well as underwater to my list uh and you also saw jeopardy the greatest of all time what is that so they did a special uh, run of Jeopardy episodes that was basically gathering uh, three of the best players that have ever played Jeopardy uh, history. So they brought back Ken Jennings, who is probably the most popular and best known player of Jeopardy, uh, Brad Rutter and James Holtzauer. And they all played in a series where the first to win three games wins a top prize of a million dollars. 
And it was just really fun because the stakes were so high and these guys have all been around Jeopardy for a while. And just, just watching them play it out was, was really enjoyable. Um, I, if you haven't watched it yet, I, I think it's on Hulu, I think, maybe right now. I, I'm not sure if the episodes, the new episodes go directly to Hulu afterwards or, or where it goes. But um, if it's available on streaming, I won't spoil who wins or anything like that. But you should watch it. It's just a fun uh, Battle of the Wits. And it's actually gotten me back into uh, watching more Jeopardy again. I've been watching the stuff that's been on Netflix for this period until the new ones come along. Uh, and it's been it's been really fun. Very cool. And uh, what else have you been watching? What else did I watch? Oh, so, <laughs> well. Um, yeah, I don't have a good transition into The Bachelor, Brad. I'm sorry. <laughs> I, so my, my girlfriend likes to watch The Bachelor. And so she's been watching it during the day at times, uh, like the day after on Hulu when I've been working. And so I've just been privy to being around it. And, oh, gosh, this show. This show is maddening in just how ridiculous and over, over overly dramatic it is. Um, it's, I understand where the entertainment value comes in because just some of the stuff that happens, it's so laughable and the people competing on this show are just totally ridiculous and melodramatic. And I've just been having fun just mocking them while my girlfriend watches and she's been laughing uh, at it as well. It's just, I, I these, these shows, I just don't know. It's, it's baffling to me that so many of these people are on there. They're like, I'm just looking for my true love. And it's like you're on a reality dating show, and the, and you know uh, they're all like, I didn't come here for all, all this attention, and it's like you are on a dating show that is on t- network television. Of course, you're going to get attention from this, and this is how it works. Uh, it's just, it's it's the worst kind of reality television. But man, it's just, uh, hate, hate watching it on the side. You know, while I've been working, has has offered some kind of release, and it's I think maybe it's it's helped me a little bit therapeutically to just just vent. <laughs> Okay. Ben, what have you been watching? Uh, so I've been wanting to rewatch The Hateful Eight for a long time. Uh, the movie has been in my Netflix queue basically since it came on Netflix. I only saw it one time in theaters, and um, I remembered it being sort of like an Agatha Christie style, essentially like a like a closed-door murder mystery kind of thing. Um, and I, I remember liking it a lot when it came out, and I just had not had a chance to, um, to rewatch it. And then uh, there was this whole thing, I think it was when last year or two years ago when they did uh, when Tarantino recut it into that miniseries for Netflix uh, and Chris got on the phone with his old pal QT and <laughs> talked to him about that. So, um, yeah, so I, I anyway, I finally got around to sitting there and watching the four part miniseries. And uh, I think Tarantino told Chris that there were like 25 minutes or so of new footage. It's been so long since I've seen the movie, I could not tell you what the additions were. Um, it felt to me an awful lot like the theatrical cut that I that I watched, you know, in 2015, um, just broken up into four segments. And I think there were originally six segments, if I have that right, um, in the in the theatrical cut. But uh, man, I, I like this movie a lot. It's it's a little tough to watch now. It's such a nasty piece of work um and and chris i think you brought that up with tarantino when you talked to him right like you're i remember uh i think i remember that yes you are correct me and my bff quentin tarantino when we had our phone call uh yeah we just talked about how nasty this movie is and i love this movie but i also know it's not for everyone because it's so mean 
Yeah, I'm looking right now. He called it an ugly little movie. Uh, and I, I feel like that's a good description of it. Um, but at the same time, I love the performances in this thing. I think uh, um, Tim Roth as Oswaldo Mowbray is really just having a blast chewing on the scenery. Um, Kurt Russell is a lot of fun. He's just like, you know, it, it's basically as if he's doing like a John Wayne type of uh type of role but like if john wayne's real life racism was on screen as a character it's it's uh it's a pretty intense movie um and yeah like chris said it's definitely not for everybody but um anyway i enjoyed watching it again i don't know i i guess when it comes down to it i would recommend just watching the theatrical cut since i don't think this version really added too much it was just like i guess theoretically easier to watch because you could break it up if you wanted to but I, since i watched it all in one sitting it, I don't really know what I got out of watching the extended like miniseries form. But has anybody else happened to to check out the miniseries version of this movie? Yeah, I've watched it. Like you, I can't tell what's new in it. It feels okay. like the same movie just in three chapters. Okay, I was wondering if if maybe uh, I was just missing something or what. But um, okay, so there's that, and maybe we can link to Chris's interview with Tarantino in the show notes because I was looking for a little bit more, you know, some more comments from him. Um, after seeing it and I think Chris's conversation with him is like the piece that everybody sort of links back to. So, um, yeah, it's, it's, if you want some more insight into, uh, why he decided to do this and how that whole thing came to be, then, uh, you can check that out. Um, I also watched on Netflix, a film called burning, which came out in, I think 2018. Uh, it was like one of the, um, movies that was, uh, it appeared on a lot of critics best of the year lists and I just missed it. Uh, it's directed by, uh, Lee Chang Dong and stars Steven Yoon and um, a bunch of other people. Um, I, I, HG, I remember you talking about this, right? But I don't remember what you thought about it. So what did you think about burning? Oh, I love burning. It's such a hypnotic, mesmerizing um, film that just kind of chips away at your sense of reality. And I really love that. And it was probably the movie that has best captured what it, it feels like to read a Haruki Murakami book. Um, so yeah, I love it. Uh, and I know Chris loves it too. Yeah, I, I have never read any Murakami novels or anything like that. And this is the first film from this director that I've ever seen. So it, it was kind of like being thrown into a deep end of a pool uh, watching this. But yeah, I think mesmerizing is a really good word to describe this movie. I was I was very like I was sucked in. It's sort of a slow movie and it's a little long, but um, I was sucked in, you know, from minute one. And um it, it really goes to some interesting places. I feel like in the back half of this movie, it basically transitions into something like um, under the silver lake almost. There's like this mystery element to it. And, and like you said, the, the notions of reality start to um, start to uh, be called into question. So um, I guess I would give it a, a light recommend because I think like uh, hateful eight is not going to be a movie that resonates with everybody. Um, but it's on Netflix right now. If you want to check that out, it's called burning. And then uh, my wife and I also started watching Curb Your Enthusiasm. I Both of us really love Seinfeld. I have no idea why it took this long for us to get into this show, but we just never really given it a shot before. And all of it right now is on HBO Go. Um, we were looking for a uh, just like a, a quick 30-minute show to sort of like cleanse our palate after watching some uh, longer, you know, deeper, uh, more disturbing drama kind of stuff. Um, and just decided to give Curb a shot. And I think both of us think that it's it's very, very funny. So I, I hope that the quality um, 
you know, stays consistent all the way through. I have no idea if that's the case. I've, I don't know if I've ever read anything about the show or like heard anybody really talking about it other than just, um, you know, liking it in general terms. But I, I don't know if like, oh man, season three, it totally tanks or any of that. I have no idea if there's any sort of like larger critical conversation about uh, Curb Your Enthusiasm or not. But um, does anybody else here watch the show or and or enjoy it or have feelings about it? I haven't seen the most recent seasons, but I watched it with great love uh, for, for six or seven years. Uh, I think it dips off in quality a bit in season six and seven. Uh, but from what I understand, it kind of comes roaring back, especially in the most recent season. So, you know, any show that goes on for a decade is going to have those lulls. But you're in for some really good television. Awesome. Very cool. HT, other than Birds of Prey. Oh, you actually finally saw Joker. Yeah, I've been catching up with my Oscar movies. Yeah, what, what, what did you think of Joker? It's all right. It's all right. <laughs> I mean, I think it's handsomely shot. I think it's really... Uh, fantastically acted by Joaquin Phoenix, but it feels like such an empty film that is devoid of meaning or message that I left feeling at a loss for what it was trying to say. And it also just made me more mad that Uncut Gems got snubbed the entire by the entire entirely by the Oscars uh, because it struck me that the the new mont of Joker and Uncut Gems are similar and that you kind of have a similar arc in both of them, in that they're both men who are sort of down the, on this downward spiral towards one inevitable uh, doom. And yet the the payoff for Uncut Gems is way more shocking than the one I feel for, for Joker, which I feel like it's inevitable. This is It's going to end this way. And it just feels like, what next in terms of endings? And it feels, it, yeah, it just felt to me like they took an interesting premise for a short film and really extended it so yeah i wasn't super impressed by joker uh but uh yeah i hope no one come and yell at me because it's <laughs> just thought it was fine well it seems it seems like your opinion is reflective of a lot of critics out there um i i do think it is better than a lot of the critics are g- giving a credit for I, I i think it's firing on all cylinders except for screenplay which is bad because it's a storytelling medium, but uh, yeah. Anyways, okay. Do, do you think if if Joker didn't come out this year, Uncut Gems would be getting the the spotlight that Joker is getting? I wonder because it is still a very uh, Uncut Gems is still a very sort of niche uh, indie film, and I don't know if the Oscars would even consider it. But may, yeah. Adam Sandler, I think, would have at least gotten in the conversation. But yeah, yeah. It, just, it just made me think about how great Uncut Gems is, if that's a strange sort of correlation. But yeah, Joker. I also the depiction of mental illness in it was very troublesome for me, and the way that they speak about abuse and uh, domestic abuse felt to me very almost glib in some ways, or at least not really understanding of entirely of all the issues felt like it was just trying to say something very important and didn't and felt very self-important about it but didn't know how to um to say to go about saying it so yeah it just it just fell flat for me yeah in in those respects i would say like it feels like it was written by someone who's seen movies about those things and not like (laughs) actually talked to any experts or had any experience in their real life about them but uh yeah yeah. uh what other oscar catch-up have you been doing I also watched Ford versus Ferrari, which I 
you know, it, it's fine too. It's a, it's also a well shot movie. I mostly enjoyed it for the camaraderie and and relationship between Matt Damon and Christian Bale's characters. When it was them on screen, I was like, you know, what's better than this? Just die, just dudes being guys, guys being dudes. And um, even the the rest of the film, uh, which I have to say, I'm not incredibly interested in cars or the uh, entire sort of Ford and Ferrari rivalry. Um, it was like. It was well written, well directed, um, just like a good, solid, solid movie. Uh, felt very much like a movie that does seem like an Oscars favorite. Um, but yeah, I, I enjoyed it mostly because uh, of Christian Bale, who is fantastic in this. And whenever he's playing a more sort of unpredictable uh, unspontaneous type of supporting character, he's always just really great to watch. Um, and then the last Oscar catch-up movie I saw was 1917, which I loved. I was actually blown away by this movie. Um, I can't say I, – I was actually quite anticipating it a little bit because I absolutely love Roger Deakins, and I think if anyone could turn a technical – camera gimmick into a piece of art he could and he really told fantastic like totally did um so 1917 um more than being just a technical marvel uh i felt was i was really touched and moved by it uh i i was um very pleasantly surprised to find that there was this great narrative through line like emotional through line of uh basically the story of human resilience and of uh, just trying to to do to, to do one thing and to do it against all odds. And I think that George McKay uh, really delivers a great central performance in this. And I enjoy just like the revolving door of uh, British character number five, British character actor number five who would show up and um, kind of come in like a sort of almost as like a cameo appearance, but I, I really enjoyed 1917. And um, I know like it's been talked about now as the front runner. And even though I am really, really hoping against hope that Parasite uh, gets the best picture uh, win, I actually wouldn't be mad if 1917 won because I think it's a, it's just a really excellently made film. Um, other movies I saw, I also saw Emma with a period. And this is the new adaptation of the Jane Austen novel, the same name, without the period, uh, directed by Autumn DeWilde. And just like its title, it's very punchy and uh, sharp. It has um, it has a very it's very stylish and uh, kind of ha taps into this weird baroque um, element that is uh, semi-satirical. It actually taps really it really captures uh, Jane Austen's own self-deprecating, wry, satirical uh, uh, prose that she has a lot of, in a lot of her books. And I really enjoyed that more comedic approach to it. Um, as a result, some of the emotional beats don't land quite as well as they could, but it's um, a really beautifully staged and um, costumed film. It's like one of the best costumes I've ever seen. Uh, if we're going to talk about Oscar conversations for next year, Emma should be the front runner for that. But, you know, everyone hates talking about Oscars at the beginning of the year, so I'm not going to do yeah. that. You, you, yeah. You're too please, early. Please, stay. stop. Stop. Right now. Stop. Please. No. <laughs> so, Chris, you just don't want us to stop talking about Oscars completely? I, I would be happy if we. I never heard about the Oscars ever again, but I know that's a bit <laughs> unrealistic. <laughs> 
<laughs> but anyways, Emma, uh, outside of all that talk, is uh, it's a really great, uh, really enjoyable and stylish adaptation um, and uh, one that brings sort of fresh energy to the story. Um, and I also watched a few other films on the way to London because whenever I'm on a plane, I take the chance to watch a bunch of movies I haven't seen. Um, the first one I saw was Honeyland, which is the Macedonian film. Um, documentary that's uh, nominated for two Oscars this year. It's actually nominated for Best Documentary as well as Best International Feature Film. And um, it's the first film to to score both nominations, actually. Um, and it's really excellent. It's another film that I was um, just kind of bowled over by. It tells the story of a lone bee- beekeeper in um, a, a sort of desolate uh, village in the mountains of Macedonia. It's only her and her mother still living in this village that has been abandoned by most other people. Um, but uh, when a neighboring family moves in and starts to try to uh, take over her territory and start starts keeping bees as well, she there's a really great sort of narrative going on between them and like how and kind of the clash between her ancient and traditional beekeeping standards and their sort of new unruly ways. Um, But it's a beautiful, um, elegant film about this uh, woman who's kind of, you know, battling these neighbors, but mostly just battling the ravages of time and kind of being lost to, to memory to a lot of people. It's, it's a, it's a wonderful film and I can see why it's actually nominated for both because it feels like, it doesn't feel like a documentary. It feels very much like it's just this. Um, these filmmakers stumbled upon uh, this forgotten corner of the world and and started and started filming. It has a cinema verite uh, feeling to it. That's just really wonderful to watch. And um, that's streaming now on Hulu as well. I highly recommend this. Uh, that's Honeyland. It's a really really beautiful film. Um, I also finally got to see. Widows, which is directed by Steve McQueen. And I heard a lot of talk about this when it came out in 2018. Uh, People were really raving about this and were disappointed when it didn't get uh, the awards recognition that it deserved. And um, I know I think there's some mixed feelings about Widows on this podcast, but uh, I really, really enjoyed this. I often find myself a little hit or miss on Steve McQueen. I find his directing style to be incredibly stylish, but sometimes a little, leaving me a little cold. Um, I really, I think that it suited very much uh, Widows, uh, which is a very performance-driven um, and really electric film. Uh, Viola Davis is fantastic, as is the rest of the cast, including Elizabeth Zabicki, Michelle Rodriguez, Cynthia Erivo, um, and uh, Colin Farrell, Liam Neeson, and I, oh, uh, I think, uh, what's his name? Uh, Daniel Kaluuya gives a really, really chilling performance in this as well. Everyone is just top-notch in this movie, uh, which is, you know, it's a heist thriller, but it also deals with issues of gentrification um, and social um, issues in a way that is um, both, that doesn't feel like it's, that feels just kind of, um, it's putting it out there. Like it's just, uh, it's it's very powerfully done, but in a way that just feels almost a little, uh, bleak in a way. Um, but yeah, I, I absolutely love this movie and, um, I, it's excellent. Everyone else who said it was great. It's, it's, it's awesome. It's great. That's widows. Th- th- um, this next movie that you saw, I'm surprised that you would seek this out. 
that this would be on your it list. It was on a plane. <laughs> I had an hour and a half left uh, to my flight, and I was like, uh, I don't really feel like putting on a movie that I wanted to watch and I might not be able to finish. If I don't finish watching this movie, I don't think I'll care that much. <laughs> um, so I put on Zombieland 2, Double Tap. Not a good movie. Yeah. Really bad, actually. <laughs> Um, I had heard not great things about this when it came out, but then it also just kind of disappeared from public consciousness for good reason, because it's a very forgettable film, uh, more so than just being bad. It's very just there. Um, and, uh, it's just kind of a really lame rehash of the first Zombieland, which I enjoyed when it first came out. Um, but it feels like this is, they do the exact same thing, uh, with the cast slightly, older and with more um, uh, prestige under their belts. But um, yeah, I, I don't know why this movie exists. Um, I know it came out on the 10th anniversary, but it just feels so unnecessary. And the cast obviously isn't into it. And it feels very much like a relic of 2010, um, just done again. So I yeah, it's bad. Don't watch this movie. It feels like a movie that was made 10 years ago that was like in a vault mm -hmm. and they released and they're like, yeah, this feels like a movie from 10 years ago that we might have found a little bit funny back then. Actually, I don't even think it was that like funny enough for back then. Like the original Zombieland has some charm to it. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Anyways. Okay. Uh, let's move on to what we've been eating. Uh, I was sick this week, so I ate badly. I had the most stuffed Oreos. These are the Oreos that like are bigger than Brad help me out with this like what is the biggest oreo before the most stuffed it's mega the the double stuff isn't it is there is there a mega stuff yeah you're right there is a mega stuff yeah that has yeah. more than the double stuff even yeah so there's double stuff and then there's mega which i think is two double stuffs and the most stuff is basically two megas so it's like this gigantic thing of the white stuff in the middle and uh it is you know, I love white stuff. I love uh, Oreos, but uh, it, it is it is a little like too much. H have you tried this, Brad? Yeah, I have, and it's it is a little too much for for sure. It's just uh, a lot of cream with just not enough cookie. It it might be good for if you were like I don't know putting them in a you know ice cream for like a McFlurry or something yeah. like that, uh, or a Blizzard, whatever you want, whatever brand you want to use. But yeah, it, it's a lot of stuff. You know what they should do? They should like make the cookie parts thicker. As long, well, actually, that probably wouldn't work. I don't know. Okay. Anyways, uh, I also have been trying out uh, Zevia. I like Zevia because I don't like the artificial sweeteners that are in diet sodas, but I like soda. I like to drink stuff that has flavor to it, but doesn't have sugar or calories. Uh, and Zevia has um, it's sweetened with stevia, which is a natural. Uh, sweetener and does not affect your blood sugar and it's, by most accounts is not bad for you unlike aspartame and stuff like that and, and uh, diet sodas so I, I've been drinking a lot of Zevia recently and I realized that on I was searching Amazon I found they have a Zevia kids line and these are like smaller canned sodas and they're marketed towards kids uh, but they have like all sorts of flavors that like, like I love fruity flavors they have like a fruit punch. They have a strawberry lemonade flavor. They have a fizzy apple flavor. They have a uh, 
a cr- uh, uh, orange cream flavor. So I've been buying these and drinking out of these like little soda cans, and I actually really enjoy them. So uh, I know they're made for kids, but if you like fruity sodas, if you're a fan of like the Fanta line of, of sodas and you're looking for something that is uh, better for you or less worse for you, <laughs> uh i would recommend Zevia kids but uh do they do they taste good because a lot a lot of the diet sodas are awful and some of the zero sugar sodas are a little bit better do these taste good have you ever had Zevia of any kind no no uh you would probably think it tastes like a diet soda I'm, i'm guessing it has that stevia taste like stevia has a taste to it um but it's better than it's better than water. <laughs> hmm. I don't know. I, hmm. I, I just like am bad at drinking water because I need like flavor in my water. And I know a lot of people out there are like, why don't you get those like those little squirt bottles that you squirt some kind of flavor into your water? What most people don't know is those like little squirt things uh, basically have the same stuff that soda has in it or diet soda it has aspartame and stuff like that. It's sucralose and stuff like that. So that doesn't make it any better than drinking diet soda. So I'm trying to drink something better than normal diet soda, and this is my solution. And I, I enjoy them, but I also enjoy diet soda. So I, I'm not sure you would, Brad, but maybe maybe it's worth trying out. I don't know. Uh, okay. What kind of uh, bad stuff have you, you been eating this week? Um, just, you know, delicious stuff. No, uh, On the same soft drink level, actually, Mountain Dew released two new game fuel flavors but it's game fuel zero so it is it's the zero sugar version of their usual game fuel uh line and they they came with two new flavors raspberry lemonade uh and watermelon and both are uh pretty dang good as somebody who hasn't been a fan of a lot of zero sugar sodas that have been released at least up until the regular mountain dew zero sugar recently uh these two are also really good I um I like the artificial flavor of watermelon. I like basically in any form, whether it's a soda or a Jolly Rancher or a gummy or something like that. And there was a um there was a Mountain Dew flavor that was released a while back that was it was strawberry and watermelon. It was part of Mountain Dew's big democracy thing where you get to vote which flavor gets to stay. And that one almost won, but it got beaten out by whatever the the blue the blue one is. I think it's Voltage or something like that. So that was always really annoying to me. And this is a pretty good replacement for that. Um, and as somebody who doesn't really enjoy raspberry as a flavor too much, this raspberry lemonade flavor is actually pretty dang good. Um, I find that these a lot of these bigger cans that are kind of that are essentially en- energy drinks, I don't like drinking them out of the can as much. Um, I like to put them on ice in a cup and it makes it better just because I think that having the, the ice cut it with the water as it melts a little bit um, just brings the flavor out a little bit more. So, but yeah, they're uh, pretty good flavors. And then also on the energy drink side, Coke released um, a new energy version of Coca-Cola. Basically, they have um, regular and cherry and then they have the zero sugar regular flavor and zero sugar cherry. Wait, wait a second. Not, what, what is this called? It's called Coke Energy. Oh, weird. Yeah. Uh, and so I only got the the, the regular versions, um, the regular and cherry, not the zero sugar versions of those two flavors. And the, the regular version has kind of an odd aftertaste. It doesn't make it bad, but it just it doesn't taste exactly like regular Coke. So I wasn't the biggest fan of it, but I thought the cherry one uh, was, re- was really good and it was pretty well on par with uh, cherry Coke. 
Um, and so it packs a little bit of extra punch as far as caffeine is concerned. So they're uh, they're not bad, but obviously since you know it's Coke, they're they're not the best for you. <laughs> um, I also tried new Cheetos popcorn, which is really not remarkably different from regular cheese popcorn. If you've ever had like Okie Dokie or or anything like that, um, the the Cheetos flavor doesn't really taste like Cheetos, and I don't know if it's just because. The Cheetos flavor is so familiar to me because it's with those, like the corn puff curls or whatever you want to call it. Um, but it's, it, it is a very cheesy popcorn. So if you like cheesy popcorn, then, you know, you'll probably still enjoy Cheetos popcorn, but it doesn't taste really remarkably like uh, Cheetos. To do, me. do they have a Flaming Hot version? They do. So that might be interesting, but you don't like hot stuff. Yeah, I'm not a Flaming Hot fan. I don't really do any of those flavors on, on the Cheetos line. Yeah. Uh, I also f- tried um, Fanta Orange Jello. Uh, Fanta has three new Jello flavors based <laughs> on some of the the sodas, and I was interested to see if they were able to like capture like the the soda flavor as opposed to just having a g- the generic fruit flavor. And there is a little bit of a difference between regular Orange Jello and the Fanta flavor. Like it's almost like uh, they have like it's some kind of carbonation imitation in it, or, or maybe it's, maybe it's just the, the simple difference between the syrup that they use to make Fanta and whatever they use to make orange jello. Um, there are two other flavors. Uh, there's a pineapple and a grape. I haven't been able to find those in stores yet, but the, the orange one is good. You know, if you happen to like orange jello and then I tried uh, two new pop tarts variations, they're pretzel pop tarts uh, where instead of having the regular um, pop tart base, I'm not even sure what you would call it. If it just, just the crispy baked cookie style um, outer layer, it's, it's, like a pretzel and uh, the two flavors they have to start off are chocolate and cinnamon sugar. And I actually think that I like these more than most regular pop tarts uh, because the pretzel flavor gives it like a little bit of a salty edge. And it's also uh, crispy without feeling dry like a pop tart usually does. And uh, it goes really well with the chocolate and cinnamon sugar because of the mix of the, the sweet and salt. So uh, if you see those around, I would recommend trying them because they're they're pretty dang good. That's interesting. I like. I feel like as a kid with pop tarts, I would like cut off the like the edges because the edges were the least interesting. Like you said, they're like very dry. So yeah. I would be interested in trying this. Uh, okay, uh, that's it for what we've been eating. Let's move on to what we've been playing. Jacob, what have you been playing this week? I played a few two-player board games. First, which is Watergate, a game inspired by the uh, Watergate um, uh, controversy and fallout from the 70s and the Richard Nixon administration. It's a fascinating design. Very, very simple and easy to learn and incredibly fun, even if you don't care about American politics at all. Uh, One player plays the Richard Nixon administration. The other player plays the editor of the Washington Post. And the board is literally a a style of look like a cork board covered with Post-it notes and yarn. And it's up to the job of the editor to collect evidence and form trails from one area of the board to the other to uh, figure out what what the Nixon administration has been up to with Watergate. And it's up to the Nixon administration to block it. And you have a a handful of cards. It's a card-driven game. That's if you're... um, if you're the journal, if you're the uh, editor, you have a handful of journalists and events that like are good for you. If you're uh, Nixon, you have a handful of like people from your administration and events that are good for you. And you play these cards, sort of um, try to pull evidence towards you on a track or push evidence away from you. And it's just this really clever tug of war. And even if you don't like the theme, uh, and ended up really getting into it, we kind of role played it. Uh, I was playing Nixon all night. My friend was playing Washington Post, and. <laughs> 
we ended up having a really, really great time. And it's also educational because if every card does have like a little text at the bottom explaining, here's what's happening in 1972. Here's why this matters. And you can choose to ignore that and play a sort of an abstract card-driven tug-of-war, you know, two-player versus game that's playable in 30 minutes. Or you can like really enjoy the history. And uh, I enjoyed it for both ways. I think this is a really, really terrific game. Probably my favorite two-player game I've played in a long time. And the fact that it feels deep, complex, and satisfying while being really simple to learn and playable in less than 30 minutes. Uh, we played, I think, four or five times in a row. And uh, he won, I think, twice. I won three times. It was, it was it was evenly matched. Once you both knew the game, it was just this nail-biter every single time. Uh, that's Watergate. And I think it's only 35 bucks as well, so we should pick this up. It, it's a really good game. Uh, game um, play. Oh, yeah. I have a quick question, Jacob. So sure. I know you said this game is easy, but is it really easy? Because I have this problem where I want to play more board games, but at some point board game rules became so complicated that they make my brain hurt. So I like, I tried to play that jaws game and my wife and I spent like an hour trying to just figure it out. And I said, this isn't worth it. So is, is Watergate easier than that? Cause this actually sounds cool, but I don't want to pick it up and then be like, Oh, I have no idea what I'm doing. And, um, I personally think the rule book in this game is really good, and uh, I learned it very quickly, but I also have a lot of experience learning games, especially ones that are far more complex than this one. Uh, what I would do, Chris, is there's a really good YouTube channel called Watch It Played that uh, creates tutorials for how to play board games in really clean, you know, clear, visual ways. And if you, so if you Google Watergate Board Game Watch It Played or Watergate Board Game Tutorial, look, look for the Watch It Played channel. It's a 15-minute long video. I use it to uh, you know, brush up in the game before I taught it. And if it looks, it's a really good way to like figure out if a game's you know your level or how easy it is to learn. I think maybe the, the best advice I can give you is watch that video, and if it clicks, it's a must buy. All right. I'd also recommend a website we've mentioned before on the podcast, BoardGameGeek.com. If you search the name of the board game on there, or even search the name of the board game, it should be like the first result on Google. Usually, is uh, will be BoardGameGeek.com, and this is basically like the the IMDb of like board games. And on the very top, it will tell you there's a section for weight, which is not how much it weighs. But how heavy or how more how complicated the game is. Uh, so I, I I would say like if you're ever considering buying a board game, like search some games that you like learned and you f- found were easy, and see what the weight number were on those, and search like the new game that you're considering and see if like that is anywhere near that weight. Like the higher the number out of five, the harder it is. I, I would generally say anything within the first like two or under are very easy. But uh, but again, these are user generated, so. You never know. All right. Yeah. All right. I'll check. I will check this out. Thank you, everyone. Yeah. Uh, and speaking of historical two-player games, uh, I feel personal. Uh, Undaunted Normandy. It's the first in a new series of games. Uh, Undaunted North Africa hits in a few months, and it's a World War II game. And the map, you, it's, there's like 12 different scenarios in the rule book, and you build a map as a French countryside. One player is the German army. One player is the American army. And it's, it looks like a war game. You, you move your tokens around the board. You know, each token represents, you know, here are your riflemen, here are your mortars, here are your machine gunmen, who are, here are your snipers. But what makes it unique is it's a deck-building game. And if you've ever played a deck-builder before, it's where you start off with a very simple hand of cards, and you add cards to your hand, you, you remove cards from your hand, essentially create, try to create the most efficient deck of cards you can to get what you want. And everything on the, everything on the board uh, is commanded by your hand of cards. So if you want to move these riflemen, you need to have riflemen in your hand of cards. And if you don't have them in your hand of cards, you can't do anything with them. And it simulates the idea of the fog of war, the idea that, you know, in a, in a battlefield, who can be on the radio, what's, what's communication like? It does a really good job of simulating, you know, here are your options right now. How do you move forward? So it makes it inherently dramatic. 
So as you're building your um, your deck and trying to get good cards in your deck and making it more lean and efficient, what makes the game quietly kind of powerful is that each card represents one person in your platoon. And it has art on the card, it has a person's name, and when the enemy kills one of your soldiers, you need to remove the card from your deck and throw it back in the box. Now in discard pile, it's gone for the entire game. So at some point, you're like, you're opening fire and you realize, oh my god, he's killed Tom, and Tom was my last rifleman. And you remove the card from your, from your hand, you realize that he's not coming back. That card, which was a mechanical benefit to you, in that it was a good card that got stuff done, you know, in the gameplay mechanics, uh, by him being struck down, it's not just a piece of the game being removed, you know, in a way that makes mechanics harder for you. It is Tom, the, the guy who's in your hand, the guy who's gotten stuff done for you. Tom's dead. And it ended up being like a really thrilling experience because I played so many war games where it's like, oh, I rolled a 10, your guy's dead, take it out the board. By having to look at your hand of cards with names and art and take them off and instead of like an army's dead, like in Risk, you kill an entire army and you don't blink. In Undaunted, you lose one card, one guy, and you feel it. So it's very, very dramatic. It's a bit more of a complex game than Watergate. Uh, and you have to, uh, I'd, it's not the most, you know, immediately inviting uh, deck builder. There are so many great deck building games out there that are much simpler to learn and don't have as many moving parts. Uh, but if you want a World War II battle game that, like, act, like simulates the, you know, the, the chaos, confusion, and pain of actual war, <laughs> Undaunted is a really, really thrilling time. I really uh, got a lot out of it. Uh, and finally, I'm learning the Call of Cthulhu RPG. Uh, uh, I mean, I, I, it's a very heavy game. It's comparable to Dungeons and Dragons and around that level. It's I typically tend to run more smaller story-driven games with, with like very light mechanics, uh, like, you know, Dungeon World or Blades in the Dark, uh, Dread. And uh, I've been just been really itching recently with my Dungeons and Dragons group to play something different. Uh, so I've been part of this Dungeons and Dragons group for years. And as much as I, lo I love the medieval fantasy, I've always been more of a fan of cosmic horror. And unlike Dungeons and Dragons, which is, you know you gain levels, you kill things better, Call of Cthulhu is based on you know cosmic horror and weird fiction from the twenties, and you know it's, it's a game about running away and trying to survive and barely scraping by, and that's very much what I find exciting uh, in a role play experience. So I've been learning the rules, reading through the rule book, hoping to get a, a session together in the next few weeks or months, and to prepare for that, I've been painting a lot of a. Uh, horror 1920s you know weird fiction miniatures cultists detectives giant monsters and if you want to see those they're on my twitter feed um i i'm pretty proud of them so far so go check it out and i'll keep you guys updated if this game ever actually happens so that's what's going on with me yeah you've gotten really good at this uh, painting minis oh thank you peter yeah um okay ht what have you been playing um this is a uh, more of a playing for my ears kind of thing. So I've been listening to the You Must Remember This podcast. Um, I started listening to it, to it for the Song of the South deep dive that she did. So You Must Remember This is a podcast about uh, Hollywood's secret or forgotten history of the first of classic Hollywood. So the first like hundred years of Hollywood. And um, it goes into sometimes celebrities like Judy Garland, Frank Sinatra, and sometimes it goes into some of the more esoteric uh, details about them. Like there's this one episode about Frank Sinatra's uh, strangest album about going to outer space. Um, but I really enjoy it for some of the deeper dives she did, like the Song of the South, in which she went into Disney's most uh, controversial 
film and talked about the racial backdrop, uh, the history, the makings of it, and the and how it just kind of all came together and what its legacy ended up being. It's really fascinating. I recommend um, listening to that. I know that a lot of people, lot of people are put off by uh, Karina Longworth, who's the host uh, of this podcast, by her sort of diction because she speaks in a very um, articulated uh, and slow way. It's not the kind of organic um, speaking that you that you hear on a lot of podcasts. It's very it's very scripted. But she does so much research into these uh, all these figures and all these pieces and aspects of of early Hollywood that it's really worth a listen. Um, but I will say that a lot of the uh, ones specific about specific um, celebrities, especially female celebrities, get quite sad and you just kind of feel depressed about how women are treated in Hollywood and how their careers end up just failing and falling to the wayside after their first like, five years of fame. So it is a little bit depressing sometimes, but it's really fascinating stuff. And that's You Must Remember This the Podcast. Yes. Okay. That brings us to the end of today's Slash Home Daily. You can find more of all of our work at SlashFilm.com. You can find this podcast published every weekday on iTunes, Google, Overcast, Spotify, all the popular podcast apps. Please feel free to send us your feedback, questions, comments, concerns to us at Peter at SlashFilm.com. And please rate and review this podcast on iTunes. Tell your friends. Spread the word. And we will see you tomorrow. Hey. Hey, Peter. Uh. Yeah, Jacob. I, I told you, uh, you do. You're doing good at the the miniature painting. I am. I'm. I'm. I'm really enjoying it. Yeah. But, uh, I I've been miniature painting a lot recently. But what I have not, what I have not done recently. Wait, wait, wait. When you're painting the miniatures, you need like something to like paint on. I, I, you have this book. Like I suggest, like taking some pages out of the book and use it, in, it to cover your your table, so the paint oh. doesn't get on the table. Peter, I have so many painting supplies. I have a whole kit full of things. I don't need to worry. My, my books are fine. My books don't need to be part of this. I, I'm all set. Especially uh, the gargantuan book of insult, offense, and effrontery. Sharp retorts, reposts, cost equips, and implant put-downs by Louis A. Safian. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I've opened up to the, the features section. Uh, so we're just going to get really mean and personal because this is all about how ugly all of you are. Oh. Um, uh, Peter, he's the kind of fellow that girls dream of every night. It's better than seeing him in the light. Oh. Uh, Brad, he looks good after a fashion, after a couple old fashions. Amen to that. <laughs> uh, ben, looks aren't everything. In his case, they aren't anything. Oh. Ooh. <laughs> HT, when she goes down to the waterfront, even the tugboats stop whistling. <laughs> I mean, good. <laughs> and Chris, he has a very sympathetic face. It has everyone's sympathy. Hmm. 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 Are you happy, Jacob? Well, Ben, you should join the Ku Klux Klan. You'd look, look a lot better with a hood over your head. Wow. Oh my God. Wow. That's a... Holy shit. Wow. <laughs> That's the only reason, though. Just that reason. Yeah. Uh, Chris, he looks like Grant. General, not Carrie. <laughs> When is, it, is yeah. this book Why from, like, the Civil War? Yeah, when, when was this book written? He's talking about tugboats. I've never seen a tugboat. Ooh, the best Civil War zings. <laughs> well, you all were war babies. Your folks took just one look at you when they all started fighting. So, yeah, it is, it's the Civil War section of the book. Yeah. <laughs> okay, we got to put an end to this. Bye, everyone. Bye. Bye.